Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Jonathan Rees, professor of history at Colorado State University, Pueblo. Among other things, he is interested in teaching history, historical thinking, and teaching technology. As he says uh, a few years ago, he was the anti-MOOC guy. Uh, But we're not talking about MOOCs, not this time. Instead, uh, we'll be discussing his most recent book on the technology, business, and culture of refrigeration. It's Before the Refrigerator, How We Got we Used to Get Ice, published by the Johns Hopkins University Press this year as part of their excellent How Things Work series. And it is, by my count, the third of his books to deal with the topic of cold things, refrigeration. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. So uh, that leads me to the next question. You've got three books on refrigeration. Uh, this is Before the Refrigerator. Prior to that was the refrigerator, I believe, from Bloomsbury. They just called it refrigerator. Refrigerator, and then yeah. and then there was the 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 big one, uh, which I have uh, refrigeration nation. Wasn't yes. It? Um, so, how the heck did that happen? That's pretty easy, actually. Um, I got interested in the history of refrigeration. As and I couldn't quite decide the level of focus. Okay. I, so I, I I, obviously, I was not clear. How did you get interested in the history of refrigeration? <laughs> can, can I do the Yeah, the yeah. Focus okay. All first? right. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, only because it explains the three books rather than one gigantic book. Got it. Got um, it. The, my, my interest in refrigeration led me to study everything about the industry. And I started <laughs> at a really detailed level. And eventually I figured out that be- staying at this detailed level would be absolutely impossible. Nobody would want to read it. Um, the people's entry, except maybe refrigerating engineers that I needed to sort of back up and do a big picture. So I did a big picture, but then I had a lot of extra material left mm-hmm. and a couple of publishers were interested in, subsets of the bigger book, mm-hmm. um, including uh, Johns Hopkins twice. So um, awesome. I produced two other books in the same giant pool of Xerox copies and cards. So how, how big is your Xerox cabinet of, ref- and what did you mine? Were you, I, I was trying to, looking at your, uh, your, uh, you know, end notes and then trying to recreate in my head your, um, your car- file cabinet. Um, most of it was trade journals. Yeah, I figured. Okay. Yeah. Lots of and lots of ads. Most of it, most of it was trade journals. Yeah. Um, th- there are a lot of ads. On a lot of those ads come from the trade journals. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that has to do with the nature of the industry at particular times. It's only a consumer industry once the electric household refrigerator is perfected in the late twenties. Before that, it's it's one industry selling to other industries, mostly uh, food manufacturers or 
uh, you know, people running refrigerated warehouses and things who know how to run a warehouse but don't know how their own technology works. Mm-hmm. Um, you would ask me about how I became interested yeah. in this, and it actually deals with the trade journals. Uh, what happened was when I was doing my dissertation at Wisconsin in the 90s, uh, I was working with a, a journal called uh, Iron Age because I was interested in the steel industry. Mm-hmm. And you had to plop the giant industrial-sized uh, books from these trade journals, Iron Age, onto a cart and then take an elevator down to the basement <laughs> in order to copy anything. But when you came up out of that elevator, right at eye level was a journal called Ice and Refrigeration that I would just see day after day after day. And, and, and even, even with that scintillating title, uh, just the boredom of the pushing the cart, it broke you down. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to see what it looked like. Yeah, I mean, okay. you know, it's the ice industry. I knew there was such a thing. Uh-huh. It was Wisconsin, after all. True. But I didn't know anything about it. And... I opened it up one day and I, I saw that a lot of early ice plants used to blow up. And I said, that's really interesting. Hmm. Um, so I started looking at why early ice and ice plants blew up. And that was a, an article. And then the article was the basis of a much bigger book. What was the bigger book that was that first book? Well, the bigger book is the, the Refrigeration Nation. Okay, right. That covers everything from 1806 to the present. A refrigerator is concentrated um, from about 1920 to the present. Mm-hmm. With a lot, you know, about half of it really is the present. They were interested in uh, just the the nature of the modern refrigerator. So I did some philosophizing about that. <laughs> and then this one before the refrigerator is concentrated in the 1880 to 1920 period. And, and even uh, and even earlier than, you know, a, a little bit earlier, a little bit later. But you know, the idea is that there's this late ice industry period mm-hmm. where refrigeration affects what we eat, but it's not really the sort of modern refrigerator period where there's personal household refrigeration just bringing refrigeration to the infrastructure of food supply changes everything yeah yeah that's and we'll get we'll get to that it 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 does it doesn't look at all like we're what we're used to and yet already it's so very different um what uh what are you as a historian um i i noticed oh boy yeah well i mean i think you're a good historian because you're many different i mean but in an age where the first year graduate students say well i'm specializing in native tribes on the northwestern core uh, shore of lake superior um and you want to beat their little heads against the wall and and, and talk, talk sense to them um you actually are you have not specialized yourself in imbecility um, is this technology? Well, it's kind of technology. Is it business? Yeah. Is it history of capitalism? Yes. Is it economic? Well, there's economic history there too. Um, so there's all those things. Uh, these days I describe my research in the history of food. Um, <laughs> there's that too. Okay. I, left that I, have, I have a lot of other interests. Um, many of them are food related. Many of them aren't. I don't get to teach the history of food as often as I would because mm-hmm. I have a lot of ground to cover in a small department, but my research interests are pretty much the history of food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it has a market and that's, that's been proven by a lot of people, yeah. not just me. So I'm, I'm still you know, looking for good food subjects, and, uh, but refrigeration and, is how I broke into it. And, and food does te- and food is extremely human. And uh, if it's not human, it's not really history. Um, and it touches on just about every aspect of the human experience too. I hope so. Yeah. Well, let's t- let's go back. Let's talk about natural ice. This is yeah. the, the 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 dark ages, the almost the prehistory of refrigeration. Um, and I think I had heard this name before, but I decided, you know, Frederick Tudor was yeah. quite a guy. Uh, describe this guy, how he became the ice king. Uh, Frederick Tudor became the ice king of New England because he decided that he needed something to send back. Um, how do we put this? Uh, ice was a good uh, a good back cargo because nothing else was coming out of New England. So you put uh, a ship uh, that's headed um, you know to the the tropics. You mm. you fill it with ice. 
uh, and you hope that some some of it's left and that you can find a market. But they, most people didn't know how to use it, so he had to develop the market before he could make any money and, on it. And you'll be bringing molasses back, uh, but yeah. he, he wanted to bring something down from New England, so he comes up with ice. Uh, right. The first voice, I, I love the idea that they were the the captain and sailors were very upset with the idea they're going to have a hold full of water. They thought they would they would sink for sure. Um, yes. by the time it was done. And that was, you said that was a fear that lasted for a long time, huh? The fear lasted for a long time and you would certainly have some water in the hold, but uh, you know, with a little luck, you could send ice from uh, Boston to India and only lose half the volume of the ice. <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. The, um, the outside ice insulates the inside ice. Uh-huh. So, um, not all of it's gone. Bigger the long time. Bigger the pile of ice, the more that's left behind. Uh, kind Perhaps. of. Um, yep. So he g- gets it, and he immediately he solves the problem. And it reminded me, you know, I've my father's as an engineer, so I've I've known this for a long time that engineers don't create just one thing. The great engineers create systems. Yeah. Um, the Wright brothers, the plane is a system. It's not just a controls it's not a wing it's not an engine it's all of those and then it's actually training as well training's part of a system too um and tudor does all that he does what elon musk did with with tesla and superchargers which is the most important part of the the tesla system really is not the car it's the superchargers yeah he, he uh, has to cover everything from how to pack it into a ship yep to how to convince bartenders to keep it around without having it melt and he um, so he creates, works on that problem for a very long time. Yeah, he creates what ice houses, and he up gets uh, he hires yep. managers for those in the Caribbean. Yep, yep, yep. And there's also ice houses uh, in New England because you have to store it somewhere until in the winter after mm-hmm. you harvest it because you can't just send it to the Caribbean immediately. Um, so there's two, there's two sets of ice houses. Uh, there's the question of how to keep it at the the bars you're selling it to. There's the question of how to pack it. Um, there's a que- all the harvesting tools mm-hmm. uh, are pioneered by Tudor's company. It's uh, so it's an incredible sort of system that he has to create. Let's talk about the the far- farming ice, harvesting ice. It really yeah. did strike me how agrarian it was. I mean, it is being done in the countryside, um, and it's done by farmers who are off season. Um, and it really, they are like husbanding. They're, they are farming. They're taking care of the ice and nurturing it and helping it grow. So talk a little Absolutely. bit, talk a little bit about that. That was just interesting. So interesting. Well, I mean, the easiest parallel between ice harvesting and actual farming is that essentially you have horses with mm-hmm. plows walking on ice. Mm-hmm. Um, the plows are modified to put in cuts that can create relatively even blocks of ice after you run over them, I don't think I, you know, you, I don't think you want to hear me talk about the exact ice harvesting process. No, go ahead. Go, minutes. No, well, not for 20 <laughs> minutes, but like three. But yeah, <laughs> but you know, you essentially you run a, a, a slight groove over the field and then people come along later and they break it at the groove. So, so it's relatively even, but you can cultivate more ice if you want to, if that's your aim, mm-hmm. like um, if the ice isn't thick enough to cut yet, you drill a hole in it, you press down on the ice, water will come up from the bottom of the ice to the top of the ice mm-hmm. and and flood the top of the ice. But if it's cold enough, then you'll get thicker ice because the extra water will freeze. Yeah, I knew uh, that as a, a hockey pond trick. Uh, yeah. The big kids do that, um, cut a hole in to make it thicker. Uh, should have figured out that would be for harvesting ice too. Yeah, that works for for harvesting ice too. So they'll 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 cultivate the ice um, that way. Um, if the ice isn't thick enough, you can harvest the thin ice, but pack it in uh, you know two stacks mm-hmm. and turn it into something that will transport more easily. That's you, another trick. You say they 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 uh, in fact looking for ice that was 10 to 15 inches thick uh too thinner and what was the problem they could fall through or it was uh, thinner it's going to melt melt faster too thick too thick it's and too thick it's too, it's too heavy to carry around so they were looking they're very precise about that in their way correct huh 
so they cut the they cut these channels in these uh, the field and squares with this hand plow, and then they use a big ice plow to cut open the seams, right? Um, yes, but I th- normally it's it's you cut deeper after you have the first groove, uh-huh. and then you you break it piece by piece. Um, so that there's just like a, just a one person in a rod doing the very last cut. And then you carry that detached piece of ice along a, a little canal you've essentially dug. Um, and then you carry it up to the ice house. Uh, and, and so you spend a very cold day. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes into the night. They I, want to harvest it very quickly. One of the other tricks is if you harvest the ice early in the winter, you might actually get two harvests in the same winter. Huh. I, I thought that the worst job was the poor guy who had to stay there at night uh, if they hadn't finished stirring the uh, the canal, the channel, to make sure that it didn't freeze up overnight. No, all, all the jobs are terrible. They, they are all terrible. <laughs> so, um, so this becomes a thing. Um, how does I, – I, I was fe- – Delighted to see that Henry David Thoreau fits in here because Walden Pond is one of those places where you get really pure ice. Yes. Um, what? I, I, but my, my, I was, I, I did not associate Walden Pond with ice. So why was Walden P- Pond great for ice? What made a place great for ice? What'd they want? Uh, clear water, uh, deep water, uh, not a lot of sediment in it, mm-hmm. and Walden matched all three of those things. And 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 rivers also work. Rivers can work uh-huh. um, when the water is running. Um, it makes uh, means that less sediment is kept there. Uh-huh. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it makes it harder to freeze, but the water that does freeze will be more clear. I mean, one of the things that's a little hard to realize is that if you were drinking a drink that had natural ice in it, you were almost certain to get dirt on the bottom. Uh-huh. Uh, as the ice melted, it would capture some kind of sediment from the place where it came, and you would see it at the bottom of the glass. So the ice with uh, less dirt, you know, fewer leaves, fewer anything other than frozen water is, is most valuable. I, I, let me repeat that. that. In places like Walden Pond or a lot of the rivers in Maine are that way. Fewer leaves is what you said. Yes. L-E-A-V, yeah. So, L-E-A-V, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So this is, uh, it's more of an organic experience, ice. Uh, it's, it's, it really is funny, though, uh, to think about this, uh, this American emphasis on purity. I don't know if it starts with ice, but it, it maybe it does. Uh, the, ads, no. the ads that you cite, they are very early on. They're bragging or touting their ice as being most pure. I can actually complicate this a little more. Okay, go for it. There's ice that's used for individual consumption where you'll literally drop the stuff in drinks. And then there's ice that's used to keep other things cold. Mm -hmm. So the good ice tends to go for drinks. The bad ice, the stuff with a lot of um, uh, sediment in it, um, can be used, for instance, to keep beer barrels cold Mm -hmm. Uh, and nobody cares if that ice is dirty because it doesn't have any contact with Mm -hmm. the product Mm -hmm. um i mean the same thing is true of uh uh, things like uh, meat later on Uh, the meat and the ice are uh, physically separated so clean or dirty cold is cold Mm -hmm. so the markets that, that we've already touched on this now uh, a couple times. Markets are all the way to Calcutta and Bombay. Uh, yes, in the early years, uh-huh. uh, from about you know, well, Tudor starts in 1806. He has competition starting around 1820. Um, that international market lasts until about 1880. Until the invention of refrigeration plants, or I should say of uh, the development of acceptably safe and functional refrigeration plants. Correct. The other change is that by 1880, there is a domestic market for ice for the first time. Mm-hmm. Even people in Boston will buy it. So uh, which oh, it's not really? true when it started. So there's no domestic market for ice in, say, 1840? 
If there is, it's very small. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've only seen anecdotal evidence about this, but I mean, the one that sticks in my mind is that it takes until 1860 for Boston residents to start buying ice in any quantity. Hmm. And that's because they've, you know, they find things that they can do with it for the first time. And, and those of us who like cocktails, however, will notice that like, for example, Jerry Thomas's uh, bar guide, uh, which, oh my gosh, when is that? 1870, 1868. I forget when he wrote, writes that, but certainly by the 1850s, he's serving lots of cocktails with, uh, ice, cracked ice, chipped ice, yeah. shaved ice, many, many different types of ice are, are mentioned. Yeah. yeah. And I did that for before the refrigerator. I hadn't touched the cocktail question yeah. in the first book. Um, but what I remember from that, I think my focus was on the mint julep. Yes. Um, that is. The mint julep starts as a non-ice drink, and when ice becomes available, it becomes an ice drink. Yeah, well, the julep and jalap are it's it is is medicinal at first, and then it quickly becomes that what we think of as a julep is, of course, is proliferates in ice. It uses lots and lots and lots and lots of ice, uh, so it can't be. It's like a lot of things that we think of as southern um, biscuits, for example. They can't actually be that old. There's no baking powder or baking uh, until the 1880s, right? Um, likewise, there's the, the, all that ice for the mint julep couldn't have been there prior to the civil war. Um, correct. Um, I mean, it could physically in port cities, uh, yeah. cause you know, one of, uh, Tudor's, you know, favorite areas is Savannah, just mm -hmm. for instance, Charleston, Savannah, New Orleans will get ice, yeah. but it won't survive, you know, trying to take it up to. Uh, no. Louisville, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, or Louisville. Yeah, to oh. Kentucky Horse Country, whatever we want to romanticize the the julep and associate it with. Yeah, I can see New Orleans certainly, and that might be an explanation for New Orleans cocktail culture is actually ice, or the availability the, uh, of ice. The very early ice industry tends to focus on Tudor because his story is a good one. Mm -hmm. um, the story of his competitors is just much harder to tell mm -hmm. uh, simply because not all of them are even ice companies. You know, they'll start the same way Tudor does, mm -hmm. shipping other things and using ice as a, a loss leader for the back voyages. Um, and so different cities will get different amounts of ice, you know, based on the number of shipments that get through on a particular year. Um, you talked about it just a second ago. Um, what begins to happen in the right after the Civil War is that the ice machine is invented, mm -hmm. the mechanical ice machine, and that will give a much steadier supply, and it'll shorten the and it'll shorten the supply chain too, which is part of the reason the supply is much more steady. So let's go back to your earliest discovery: um, ice plants blew up. Uh, yeah. That was certainly the most glaring problem with man the technology of manufacturing ice. Uh, why did they blow up, and what were some other troubles? Why did it take? Uh, why did it take? It was uh, there's a very gradual overlap between the uh, natural ice and the mechanical ice. Natural ice lasted a lot longer than I thought it would have. Um, yeah, it's because <clears throat> mechanical ice takes uh, just a very long time to perfect. Mm -hmm. So what you have, and this is this is what I found in ice and refrigeration, which I was just sort of mm -hmm. blown away by, is this big, multi-decade, but really only about 40-year industry of ice manufacturing, where you use these refrigerating machines that weigh about five tons and take up you know, the size of most of a large warehouse in order to manufacture ice. The reason they blew up is that their refrigerant was usually ammonia, mm -hmm. and ammonia is explosive under this, uh, very particular circumstances, uh, and you know, people you know, lost their lives. There was a refrigerating machine explosion at the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago. <laughs> Gosh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just, it just takes time to get through that. It takes time to have a steady supply of ammonia. It takes time to train engineers in order to be able to fix one of these things. Mm -hmm. Like I said, if you ran a cold storage warehouse in 1890, um, you're probably using, actually you could be using ice, sadly enough. <laughs> but if you, if it's like 1900 and you pioneer cold storage with one of these uh, large refrigerating machine, you can't fix your own machine. 
so you either have to hire somebody with very unique skills or you have to live near where the machine was made, which is basically New York and no other choice. And it just takes a long time uh, for those kinds of machines to become reliable. And when those kinds of machines finally are reliable, it doesn't take very long uh, for the technology to come along to shrink them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which makes uh, electric household refrigerators possible for the first time. So in the meantime, in the meantime, these ice plants um, are they're spreading to certain markets and changing markets. So talk about breweries. You have a couple yes. of pages on breweries. Yes. So the pioneers in mechanical refrigeration are brewers. Hmm. Um, Brewers and grocers. And what brewers do is they want to make a uh, lager beer, which requires it to be, I mean, it used to be only brewed in winter, but you have to be able to keep a consistent low temperature. And first they use ice, and ice is, makes, makes uh, lager beer possible, but mass production of lager beer requires the brewer to get an ice machine. Mm-hmm. And that's a you know, gradual process between about 1870 and 1890. And the people who make those ice machines, including a couple of brewers, uh, then spread out into ice machine manufacturing because obviously refrigeration has many, many uses. Now, when we say ice machine at this point, are they are they manufacturing ice or is this just an enormous refrigeration plant? So they are manufacturing refrigeration plants. Okay. You sell it to someone like a cold storage warehouse, mm-hmm. like a brewer, like um, – no, I, and of course, like uh, an ice manufacturer, there are people who will just stop harvesting and put machines in cities, cut the size of the of the ice supply line, and make a lot of money just selling consumers ice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the grocers, how how are they benefiting? Uh, it's kind of obvious, but not obvious because I don't oh. think I don't think uh, we really appreciate. Uh, yeah, we, we don't appreciate the change that occurred because of this. So grocers and hoteliers will buy ice machines to supply themselves uh, ice to keep perishable goods cold. Um, so that's one of the first parts of what I call the cold chain that begins to fill in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will do that so that the perishable foods they buy in markets, for instance, will stay longer and they'll have less waste. Uh, lower overhead and uh, be able to sell you know, better products to is this, people who come to buy their stuff. Is this why we start finding the the Delmonicos and restaurants like that around the mid 19th century and the late century? I mean, because of the the change in refrigeration and the food supply chain. It changes the nature of restaurant food, but it doesn't. I don't think it. I, I've never Does seen anything that like creates increases it. the number of restaurants. Okay, but you know, uh, Horn and Hearts, I think. Um, I've seen like them in, uh, you know, they're the people where you open yeah. the door and you take out the piece of pie. The automat. I've seen, I've seen their refrigeration orders. Yes, the automat. That was the word I was looking for. Um, I've seen their refri- refrigeration orders. So their equipment is equipped with refrigeration machinery so that mm-hmm. they can sit there longer. Um, that's probably the teens or 20s. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the sort of getting uh, – in the meantime, there are also these these ice manufacturing plants are producing more – people are getting used to ice products. They're drinking ice water. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they now – after a certain point, they require – Americans require ice water. That's, that's just – it's necessary for life itself um, and civilization generally. And that's that happens that – is by 1880, right? 1890. Everyone needs, you have to, people are advertising iced water. Yeah. So it's a, it's a gradual process. Um, this large cities will get the, the first ice machines and most of the innovations are going to occur in those large cities. Uh, what will happen is, is the machinery shrinks. You know, Mm -hmm. I was talking about it being five tons in a giant warehouse Yeah. between about 1880 and 1910, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and less expensive. So that you begin to see uh, that kind of machinery and uh, you know, cold storage plants uh, first appear in smaller cities and then even small towns in some cases. And it's spreading from south to north. 
Um, not necessarily, right? So the first machines are in the South, mm-hmm. but I think the most successful machines are in cities like New York and Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, there are reports, for instance, of the ice in New Orleans being just terrible. Yeah. Uh, you know, as late as 1880 and 1890. You can make ice with a terrible machine, but it'll be you know, very soft. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, just barely to keep your drink cold. Uh, but, it, you know, it satisfies the demand for that market. Huh. Um, so, you know, it, there, there is more to be done. <laughs> I've tried to, to put out an outline of some of these yeah. things. Uh, but it's, it's hard to, to really say in direction. I know I, th- I thought it was interesting enough to realize that those things were shrinking over 30 mm-hmm. years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> rather than, you know, uh, rather than exactly where they're shrink- where they're biggest and where they're smallest is a much harder bit of research. Yeah. So the, the natural ice is being driven uh, out out the door by 1910. Certainly 1920. It's gone. So in in weirdly enough, it makes a, a revival for World War One. OK. Um, and it's some places, not others. And the best example of this is New York. Mm -hmm. The largest naturalized market in New York, well, in the country, is New York City. And that's because the Hudson was really good for ice harvesting. Hmm. And the company that controlled it, you know, the Ice Trust, uh, sort of did its best to keep large mechanical ice machines out of New York. It didn't work entirely, (laughs) but there's still a big market for that ice and it's it's easy easy to cut easy to just stick it on a barge put it down the Hudson and consumers can buy it you know well into the World War One years. Hmm. It's really not until um, the electric household refrigerator becomes affordable to most people and efficient late 1920s that the naturalized industry is is really doomed. What I was in the Poconos a couple summers ago and was saw that's when I started thinking about this uh, just idly long before I saw your books because I I had they were harvesting ice into the 1920s yeah um and I was just I was couldn't believe that that still was going on so late um and then yeah. it left overnight almost at least according to the pictures so probably for nearby use yeah um, so what um. Let's describe the sort of local chain. How do we, we by, say, 1905, uh, people have ice boxes, yes? Um, so let's, descri- yes. let's describe how ice gets from the ice house to the ice box, and how it cha- then we'll get to how it changes. Uh, it's changing people's life in the turn of the 20th century. Okay, so you want me to go down the yeah. cold chain? Let's go down to cold, the cold chain. I love that. Yeah, cold chain. Yeah, so 1880 to 1920, you have like two different sources of ice. You know, large cities, most large cities will have a, a giant ice machine somewhere. So that'll take out these giant multi-ton blocks. Um, that's one source of ice. The other source of ice is, uh, you know, relatively fresh bodies of water like the Hudson or the Kennebec in Maine. Um that'll be harvested, taken out uh, in winter, put in an ice house, taken out in the summer again, uh, and then cut into blocks. So it's, it's actually, if it weren't for the, the sediment, it would be difficult to tell whether your ice was natural or not. Mm-hmm. And there is some problem with substitution of one for the other. <laughs> um, so that's, that's the first thing. The two different places where it can originate, but the effect is the same. You've got a very large block of ice. Mm-hmm. Um, those uh, blocks will be uh, uh, transported from wherever they originated to the place where the market is. Uh, in the Hudson, for instance, it's just put on a barge and floated down the river. Uh, there are ships uh, that are taking uh, ice from the Kennebec because it's because it's particularly good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there's a premium for it. So 1880 to about 1900. John, cities, Philadelphia, uh, Baltimore, uh, far, far south is Charleston, really. Uh, you no know, pure main ice. That's a sign that it's not polluted. It's a sign that it doesn't have a lot of sediment in it. So it'll be transported from wherever it was generated to wherever it's it's going. If you get to a, a pier, for instance, if it's like Washington, D.C., and a block of main ice lands on a pier, uh, that'll be put on a cart. 
uh, and there'll be uh, an Iceman who runs the cart, probably two people actually, uh, and we'll take that cart on a pre-designated route. Uh, they will ask people on that route if they need ice today, or those people will leave a sign that says they need ice today. They will cut some of it off uh, their block, uh, leave it in the back of the ice box at that particular home, and that ice will slowly melt, hopefully keeping some perishable food fresh inside. Okay, so let's the I was uh, interested. This is just fascinating to see that in the the Iceman, because um, you've got a lot of numbers uh, in this book. Uh, in New York City alone, there are fifteen hundred ice wagons and about and therefore about three thousand horses. And, yeah, and horses got used up by the ice trade. Uh, yeah, it's it's heavy stuff. Yeah, it's, ice is he- water is heavy, and so a uh, summer of the ice trade could could waste a horse. So, you know, they've got you've got that uh, cost. You've also got who's going to carry these things, and you know, I never put it all together. There's a reason why Eugene O'Neill has a the play as the Iceman cometh. So, what are Icemen supposed to be like in popular culture at the time? Really, really big burly guys who can carry a large block of ice on a single shoulder up many flights of stairs. Yeah, one guy you quote says he took 100 pounds on the left shoulder and 50 suitcase fashion on the right side. Uh, This is impressive uh, because he keeps doing that all day. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Uh, The the boxer Joe Lewis was an ice man. Yeah. Um, Just to give you one example. Yeah. Um, it's, it's good training. So, and also they are alone with, uh, the housewives. That's the other reason for their reputation, I guess. Yeah. The, um, the Iceman cometh is actually a dirty joke. Yeah. Uh, I think I explained in my, my refrigeration nation book in one of the footnotes. I, I had no idea. I hadn't, I hadn't seen the play before I started studying ice. Exactly. <laughs> so the, um, the uh the and it, it's interesting too because i mean this is the this is like one of the first times in probably with it with urbanization this is the first time that women are alone at home anyway uh uh and not where men are away from the home so i guess that's another part of it is going on too um what uh why were why did ice companies seem to be have been habitually suspicious of ice men is because it was really easy to cheat, right? So yeah. ice is not a discrete object. You can't say I have, you know, three blocks of ice today. You have to ask, you know, how big are the blocks? Um, and it, uh, not only that, it melts, right? right? So there's no scientific formula for exactly how much ice is going to melt. So I mean, probably the the most justifiable reason for being suspicious of Iceman is that it's really easy to sell people a little ice from the side. Um, you know, you take some off the block, you take the money, you pocket it, um, you claim it was melted, yeah. and your boss never knows. What, what a tragedy that was. Too bad. Um, so they have these coupon books, which is part of one of the technology, right? Yeah, the coupon book is an attempt to you know, document all the sales so that it makes it much harder for the iceman to cheat your um, to cheat to cheat the employer, or their consumer to cheat the employer too, right? Yeah, for that they're, they're part of the deal, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what are if, the, what are the things that they're putting the ice into? The consumer? Yeah. What's the, what? What is an ice box? All right. So first of all, if the supply is efficient enough, mm-hmm. um, like it's, if it's New York. Uh, you know, you might not even own an ice box. You just buy a, a block of ice and stick it in the tub in the middle of summer to make uh. life a little bit more bearable. Uh-huh. But an ice box is nothing but a box um, with some ice in it. Uh, sometimes it's two doors, <laughs> and one of the doors where the ice goes, and then there's just holes inside, and you know, the cold comes up, and you put the food somewhere else. Uh, but it, it still gets the, the cold air that the melting ice generates. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's very simple. I and mean, there are ice boxes as early as the 1840s. They get bigger and more elaborate as ice becomes more popular over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Mm-hmm. And the problems with them is that uh, well, I, I guess the, the biggest problem I hadn't realized was, well, but I thought, duh, is that you can't control the humidity. It's one of the different, the huge difference between, a, say, a refrigerator and an icebox. 
No, that's absolutely true. I mean, another problem is the more often you open the door, the faster it's going to melt. Yes, yes. Uh, housewives would do things like buy ice blankets to wrap their ice so that it'll last longer. But if you do that, then it doesn't generate as much cold and your stuff goes bad. Huh. Um, uh, women, uh, or I should say uh, anyone who was uh, dependent on an ice box was dependent on the iceman to show up uh, you know, every day or at least on a regular round. Because if you, you know, lose one supply, all your food's going to go bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so having access to refrigeration is a world-changing experience. But you know, it takes a good 80 years for refrigeration to become efficient and reliable. Mm-hmm. So this all is leading to even the icebox, however, leads to incredible um changes in the diet uh i was my my students are always like what when i tell them that in early america they had beer for breakfast um they can't get their head around that i realize you know i can't really get my head around that either um because i can't quite imagine oh you, you think to yourself well geez on the farm they have dairy all the time but of course they know their milk better than i do and they're only going to drink it if it's in cheese or something like that. That's how they're going to consume it or butter. But even butter, it turns out, is difficult without refrigeration. So beer for breakfast occurs because uh, you can't refrigerate dairy. Um, what, what are some of the other changes? Oh, boy. So um, I know they're just it's, there's so many. There's, I mean, it's just about any kind of perishable food. Uh, becomes possible because of refrigeration yeah. probably i think i should probably start with the big one yeah you know, which everybody knows and is a relatively often told story which is meat yeah go ahead um, with that the, the long story is that you know all the um, meat processing first pig and then cow is concentrated on the south side of chicago when you do that it becomes possible to both increase efficiency lower price drives out the butchers in uh, the East Coast because the Chicago meat packers can undersell them. Mm-hmm. The refrigerated rail cars of that era, 1870s, 1880s, uh, actually all the way to the 1950s, are refrigerated by ice. They are not mechanically refrigerated. Really? They just put that big stacks of ice in the bottom of the car? or How do they do it's that? Like, it's more like to the two ends of the car. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, that's that's Gustavus Swift. He's dealing with ice refrigeration, so ice is absolutely essential to make that possible. Uh-huh. And he's got stations along the the rail line he uses for new ice to come along, since it does it does melt in large mm-hmm. amounts. That is all ice refrigeration. Ice makes meat for the masses possible, hmm. and it simply couldn't have existed without it. It's uh, for it's the biggest one. for so many people in America as a rural country. It was you ate fresh meat at slaughter time, um, and then everything else had to be preserved in one way or the other, uh, usually by yep. smoking or salting, which is kind of the same thing. Uh, smoking works because of salting. Um, so what they're eating was a lot closer to corned beef all the time. Uh, they were not eating steak unless they were very fortunate. Yeah, I mean, you can do other things to meat, like pickle it. Sure. But, you know, it Refrigeration is the only form of preservation that does not affect taste. And I also it took people away from this is sorry gets to uh, oh gosh more work for mother. Yeah, um, I, a book I have read many times. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, that uh, that it's it's not it, she's uh, focusing on technology of the hearth, um, and in this case it's the technology of the hearth plus uh, I guess chilling enables you to do something other than stew stuff. Um, you have all of a sudden you're eating more than just soups and stews or, or more than the substantial or substantial part of your diet before all this. Cleaning the refrigerator was not easy. Yeah. Uh, cleaning the icebox was even worse. Yeah. What's, um, what's the, what's, so, what's cleaning it, the icebox like? Well, what happens is the, the, the early iceboxes are wood and mm-hmm. so they get, take on all the smells of the food. So you have to be absolutely immaculate with it so that it won't affect the taste of what you're eating. Uh, and it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a nasty job to 
clean out. And I imagine also if it's like natural ice, then you've got pond scum and sediment and all the rest of it at the bottom of the uh, icebox chest. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, it it drains, but even then you have to clean the drain, which is not easy. And this is also the creation of the California vegetable and fruit industries come out of this to circle back to what we were just doing. It, that's true. Um, you can ship fruit and vegetables relatively long distances without ice, um, but you would never make it from you know California to the East Coast without ice. Mm-hmm. What ice makes possible is the concentration of a year-round fruit and vegetable production in California, making California the really the the food source of the country instead of having more local markets for many different things. It didn't quite come out the way I wanted it. But, you know, even today, most of our fruits and vegetables in the winter come from California, if mm-hmm. not, you know, Mexico. Yeah, or- and that's a decision that comes out of this era. Ice makes it possible for that produce to make it all the way to the, the East Coast. Iceberg lettuce, for instance, is mm-hmm. uh, bred in 1906. And it's called iceberg lettuce because it can stand up to ice refrigeration during the trip. Um, Let's uh, we're getting towards the end of the the program. So let's let's talk about some of the takeaways. Um, You emphasize over and over and over again the importance of technological systems. And I discussed that with Frederick Dover. Uh, We don't think of we wouldn't think of such a primitive quote unquote uh, thing is as natural ice being harvested and sent to the Caribbean as a technological system, but it, it very much was. Um, yes. What are some of the what are some of the other things that we can learn about technological systems from this story of ice? Uh, my 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 sort of ideal system is more like an electrical system. Mm-hmm. You, know, you read enough Tom Hughes and you know that. The way to have an efficient system is to have one person sort of create it, all of it. Uh, you know, the Edison system comes to mind instantly. He didn't just work on light bulbs. He worked on generators and transportation of electricity from place to place. Mm-hmm. And then you know, the first u- the utilities will control that entire system. Um, what I think the ice industry suggests, and there were even, even refrigeration to some degree if we're talking about food supply, mm-hmm. is that systems can develop organically over time if there is an alignment of interests if everybody wants to make sure that there is still ice available that it doesn't melt very quickly then everyone will work to keep ice intact for as long as possible and then the food that it supports will be kept from rotting as long as possible and you don't have to sit down in a room and say you know let's set up the system the system will sort of build itself over time as the technologies approve at different parts of that system. Mm-hmm. So some the, of those are some of those will be local. Some of those are going to be national. Yeah. So it's it's an organic, self-healing, replicating, growing sort of system without any central control. Um, yes. No. No one. No one sits around and says, "Hey, let's do this." It's not as you point out a couple times. This is there's no Rockefeller of the ice industry. Um, there really, there really can't be. And people will use that system for all sorts of new things. Everything from, you know, mixed drinks to air conditioning uh, when they suddenly have a a cheap supply of ice available. Mm -hmm. What, um, so what do you mean is this is related, I guess, to this concept of ice as, as a triumph of decentralized capitalism. So what do you mean by that? Uh, what I mean is, well, I th- in a way, I just answered that question. You did, but, you did. But try, well, let me let me answer a second let me, time. Mm-hmm. Let me tweak it a slightly differently. In a in a decentralized capitalist system, there's a niche, and I think what's really interesting is that ice fulfills the same niche that refrigeration does later, mm-hmm. and it pioneers the. It pioneers the creation of markets that refrigeration will feel will fill better. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Even though it's like 50 years before the electric household refrigerator. So in a decentralized system, there's not just coordination between different parts of the same system. There's, or I should say non-coordination, or maybe I should say tacit coordination. Mm-hmm. 
uh, between different parts of the same system. There's tacit coordination between the refrigerator guys in 1930 and the ice people in 1880. Um, without ice, refrigeration probably wouldn't have developed. But because ice developed, everybody was like, oh, man, we really need this mechanical refrigeration because I know there's going to be a giant market because the ice people demonstrated that that market exists. Mm -hmm. um, so you think about historically thinking a little bit. Um, so how does um, – I'm not sure how to actually toy around with this, but one of the things that uh, Lendl Calder and I like to say is that um, – Historical thinking helps you deal with complex problems. Is is that does that does that apply to the refrigeration, uh, the, the ice industry, refrigeration, or not? I mean, I think it does. Um, for me, what I found most interesting about this industry is to just you know, understand the technology the way they understood it back yeah, in the day. Exactly. Where you just try to figure out everything they know and then see what lessons you can draw for either later in history or most likely the present. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, the timeline was always going to be 1806 to the present for the first work. Uh, but when I did the latest book uh, before the refrigerator, I just dug into the turn of the 20th century and it just turned out to be a whole different set of lessons. When you look at ice and diet, there are different lessons, or at least you can see a different set of importance, rather than we're just looking at you know, the creation of a system. It's like you, you do the history first, and the historical thinking will give you the argument, and a good historical argument will be what makes that story you just told relevant to everybody. Hmm. And since everybody eats, refrigeration is relevant to everybody. My guest today has been Jonathan Reese. He is the author of, in 2013, it was Refrigeration Nation, and 2018, Before the Refrigerator, and somewhere in between there from Bloomsbury came Refrigerator. So it's the, the ICE trilogy, the Refrigeration trilogy, um, and if you're interested in how things worked, they're fascinating books. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.